Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. The expert in foreign affairs. The man knows everything that goes on around the world. He has PhDs. He has written special papers. He has contributed to that many magazines and newspapers, media across Australia as a commentator on these issues. So there is no one better place to host this podcast, essentially. Okay. China is just so influential in the world today. Mm. Everyone has a trade deal with China. Everyone tries to have a good relationship with China, but it's very, very hard because China can't help but stick its nose into other people's business. So it is a very hard relationship to maintain, I would think, if you were the Foreign Minister of Australia or any other country for that matter, Keith. So we're going to discuss the importance of China to every country in the world. But let's start with Australia. Yep. So I was asked to speak at a Christmas dinner for Reinvent Australia, which is a membership organisation working on how to improve the quality of life for all Australians. And the topic that I was asked to speak on was, does Australia still need China? And my view is that it's a good question to ask, but we're asking it decades late because we have become so reliant upon China. So perhaps 20, 30% of our exports go to China. China is a major supplier of overseas students to our universities. So Australia is locked into that relationship with China. So one question is, does Australia still need China? My view is that yes, Australia does, because we've narrowed our options. And later on, we'll need to look at what else we could be doing to reduce that reliance. That's one question. But there's also another question is, when will China stop needing Australia? Because at the moment, Australia is very important to China as a supplier of raw materials. We're a stable supplier. We don't try to rip the Chinese off. We don't kill Chinese people. If you're moving into Africa, for example, that's a risk you run, that your own staff could be murdered by locals. We have no violence in that sense in Australia. So what is interesting is that China will reach a point when it will stop needing Australia, because by that time, the Belt and Road Initiative will have become so important that China will have opened up other parts of the global economy. So the Belt and Road Initiative, sometimes called One Belt, One Road, is an idea from China, particularly President Xi, whereby China becomes the centre of the global economy. So at the moment, the United States has been the centre of the global economy. It took over that role from Great Britain following World War II. And then the United States wasted a lot of its own role, if you like, by then getting bogged down in all these wars against Islamic terrorists. I don't regard that as a major issue for America, but nonetheless, America regards it as a major issue. So a lot of its energy has actually gone on focusing on Arab politics or Iranian politics. Meanwhile, China has not gotten involved in any of those issues. They do certainly do have problems with Muslims within their own borders called the Uyghurs, which are people at the western end of China. So they would have travelled from what is present-day Turkey. These are Turkic people. And so they moved into East Turkmenistan, which you can't, a word you can't use in China, by the way. So they, they so it's called the, the people in Uyghurs, the Uyghur people who are living in uh, the far western part of China. And so China has kept out of, as far as possible, other people's wars. Uh, it's simply around to do deals. And so its Belt and Road Initiative um, means that you can now get on a train on the east coast of China 
and you get off the train in the east end of London. So they have managed to standardise railway gauges, transportation arrangements. So you go from one side of the world to the other. But hold on a minute. This is a Chinese initiative. This is a Chinese initiative, standardising railway arrangements. So you can move, as I say, from the eastern China on the coast and you can ship stuff through to East London. I say East London because that's where the train stops. At the end and of the they, line. they were able to negotiate this with all the a myriad all of, of countries that you have to cross from China through the Middle East, essentially Russia, you know, Eastern Europe, Western Europe. Well, in the case ever. of the Middle East, they've gone over the Middle East. They've gone Sorry. north of the Middle East. That's precisely true. Precisely because it's <laughs> such a problem. But they've certainly negotiated with their traditional enemy, Russia. Yeah. That's and, what, of course, yes. you know, Russia and China are cooperating on this huge Siberian gas pipeline paid for by the the Chinese, but uh, opening up Siberia. And because of climate change, you can now get at this stuff. Um, I had a winter in Siberia, in Russian Far East, Soviet Far East, Habarovsk. I tell you, they take their winters very seriously. As you would. (laughs) As you would. In those days, if you turned off your car, you wouldn't be able to restart until the spring arrived. So it's a really, it used to be very cold, but now, thanks to climate change, the, the th- permafrost is now beginning to melt. And what are we talking here? I mean, describe it for us, that Siberian winter, because it's, it's extreme, isn't it's it? Like a, minus it's, it's 50 bitter. degrees and Celsius? The, the river freezes over. So in theory, you could walk from China from the Soviet Union into China. You wouldn't have done that. You'd get your head blown off. But that's when I, when I was at Habarovsk. So these are traditional enemies who are now being pushed together, ironically, by American hostility to both countries, ironically. So we see this railway line. It's just one example of this Belt and Road Initiative, which, as I say, runs from eastern China, will take you into the east end of London or into Africa. So the Chinese are opening up Africa, and that's the implication for Australia because the Chinese would like to get extra suppliers. So you then play one supplier off against another. So, yes, they'll be buying coal from Queensland, but we can get cheaper coal from South Africa or Mozambique. But and as you said, their people could get killed. Their people could get killed. That is their town. And, but on the and other hand... And supply could get hijacked by a number of different organisations over there. I mean, those are the risks you run. They are doing. the risks you run. But at the same time, you don't get lectures on human rights which is what Australia is inclined to do. So that's the other question. So does Australia still need China? And then when will China stop needing Australia? At the moment, it's important for the export of raw materials and coal. It's important for what's called the export of education. In other words, you bring students from overseas to educate them at our universities, particularly for the big universities like Sydney and Melbourne, Western Australia. These are universities that are heavily reliant now on those Chinese students. Some of the regional ones are not quite so reliant, but certainly those big, you know, the old Stanstone buildings, Stanstone universities are certainly very reliant. So you've got raw materials, education, and you've got tourism. New Zealand used to supply the single most important group of tourists into Australia. And New Zealand is a population of of 4 million. Now we're tapping into a population of 1.3 billion and so we're catering for that Chinese market. So that, that's why it's also important. But it was interesting that at the time that I gave the talk to reinvent Australia, we had the issue of just media stories that I was covering for Channel 7. Uh, we had 
Nick Zhao, who was a luxury car dealer, who reported to Australian authorities that he'd been approached by some Chinese figures saying they would help finance his election campaign for Chisholm. And then, Chisholm, yeah. he, then he was found dead in a motel room and they're still not sure how he managed to die. So that was one story. That was Nick Zhao. Then at the same time, we had um, Wang Li Chang, who uh, allegedly is a Chinese spy who wants to receive diplomatic asylum in Australia, uh, says he has a lot of information about how uh, people in Hong Kong and Australia and elsewhere um, are being infiltrated by the Chinese. So he may well contain a treasure trove of information. Probably he'll end up in the United States. And then we get the strange death that took place in Pimble with the husband of the victim and children suddenly dashing back to China. Will they be handed over? Will they be subject to being investigated by the Australian Federal Police or their representatives in China? So I simply made that comment that they were three stories that we had that morning in the media. And it's an example about how Chinese stories are going to come to dominate more and more of our lives. We've lived in a little bubble, what I call the weird world. So that's Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. And so if you look at our media coverage uh, of foreign news, it's the British royal family, whoever happens to be the American president at the time, pop stars that tend to come out of Western Europe or the United States, film stars that are coming out of the United States and Great Britain. So that's what I mean by that weird world. And that gives us the bubble in which we have lived. But the Chinese are coming along now and piercing that bubble. And so we're going to get more and more China-related stories in a variety of contexts. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking about China and whether we as Australians actually need the relationship with China. And I know you just then before the break, Keith, we're just talking about different facets in which we operate and tourism being important and then businesses obviously in trade. But what about the fact that, you know, consumers in Australia, just the population in general, there is a very large and continually growing Chinese population in Australia. They are spending a lot of money here. They're buying a lot of real estate. So a lot of people getting locked out of the market because of these people in their deep pockets. Um, There's ill will about that. There's ill will. There's scaremongering going on by the government at times about an attempt to spy on us as well by the Chinese. They infiltrate our politics. So there is a lot of negative angles that are being that are in the press, which makes Australians on the whole probably quite suspicious of the Chinese agenda. Do we have a right to be suspicious and do you think it's justified? Absolutely. I think we do have a right to be suspicious and there is some justification for it. The, the risk you run is that you don't want to be accused of being racist. Mm. Remember, this is the, the, the risk which Australians have when they discuss China or any Asian. Yep. Uh, issue because they are seen then as the you know the Asian peril, the yellow peril, etc., that dominated mm. Australian politics in the 19th century. But we have to recognise that China has an ambitious agenda. China looks a lot at a lot of its own people living overseas as still Chinese citizens. Okay, they've got an Australian passport, but your loyalty is back towards the motherland, which is China. And so if people are concerned about Chinese influence in Australia, they've got good reason for it because you've got some Chinese that are loyal to China, 
But you've got others who are saying, no, we don't have any links with the Chinese Communist Party. And there is the, the issue that we've touched on in the case of Hong Kong, how political scientists like myself, so far anyway, have got China wrong. The theory in political science is that as a society gets richer, so it tends to become more democratic. In other words, that you get people moving up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you move away from the basic needs of food, shelter, clothing, etc., moving towards this thing called self-actualization. So that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, in political science terms, a, a poor peasant society can be run by a military dictatorship or a fascist dictatorship or a communist dictatorship. But as that society evolves, so a middle-class uh, population no longer fearing about where the next meal is going to come from, because they know they've got the food in the refrigerator. They feel quite confident that they're going to eat that night. So they then want to have more of a say in how the country is being governed. And if you look at our own region, countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia, the Philippines have all been fascist dictatorships of one sort or another. They're now flourishing democracies. They're all very wealthy societies, and that wealth has then spilled over into the change of political culture. We have not seen that happen in China. That has been the real concern, that China is certainly getting richer than ever before. It's a magnificent achievement to lift so many people out of poverty, but we're not seeing it flow through to a relaxation by the Communist Party of its control over society. And this is where we political scientists got it wrong. It also, of course, helps to explain the the mess up with Hong Kong, So, at least so far. You know, when Mrs Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, was negotiating for Hong Kong to go back to China beginning in 1997, she insisted on there being a 50-year transition period. Her reasoning, which I supported, was that in that 50-year transition period out to 2047, in that time, China will become an increasingly modern democratic society and so it could easily blend into Hong Kong in 2047. So does China take over Hong Kong or does Hong Kong take over China in 2047? But in fact, so far anyway, we've got it wrong. China has not become a flourishing democracy. It's certainly flourishing economically. In fact, quite the opposite. They've just put a leader in for the next 100 years <laughs> or whatever they did, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. And Pre so, yeah. so President Xi is there for life. He's no longer subject to the five-year term limits. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Now, let's go. We're not going to be able to cover all the different countries and their relationships with China, but one, obviously, that is of interest to Australia and probably the rest of the world is always America's relationship with China, which is a little strained with Trump at the wheel and there's been a trade war going on which has affected global markets and, and the other deals that other countries are doing with China. Some are looking to take advantage of the tension between Trump and Chinese President? President Xi. That's it. How important is that relationship to everyone else? It's the fundamental relationship, I think, in international politics at the moment. So these are now the two biggest economies. Remember, the Russia does not have a large economy. It's the size of Canada's. So forget Russia in this context. The two big economies are America and China. There are complaints that have been made by the Americans about the behaviour of China in terms of its stealing intellectual property, in terms of restricting foreign investment within its own country. Um, you made the comment about Chinese buying up Australian real estate or Canadian real estate. 
You can't do the same in, in China. So when President Clinton campaigned to get China admitted to the World Trade Organization, his theory was that when China joined the World Trade Organization, which it did in the year 2000, it would then start to open up its economy. But in fact, that's not happened. China has benefited from being able to communicate with members of the World Trade Organization, but they haven't actually made any or too much of a structural change within the Chinese economy itself. And so we see, therefore, an unequal playing field. President Trump in 2016, when he was the candidate for the presidential election, focused on China uh, and the allegation that China is raping the United States, that jobs are going to China, that China is selling lots of stuff to America, but America doesn't sell much stuff to China. Manufacturing over there is Manufacturing going, etc. Now, some of that is untrue. A lot of manufacturing is disappearing in terms of human labour. It's computers who are doing the manufacturing. But nonetheless, there, there really are problems for Americans and others trying to do business in China. China is a very dangerous society. You fall out with the government, you therefore go to prison. We've got Australians in prison in China at the moment. So China is, is not playing by the rules. Who are being tortured, by the way. But... And being tortured, <laughs> yep. So what we have, therefore, is, is a very unequal relationship between the United States and China. China is not playing by the rules. And so China is able to exploit our thinking on free trade. Let me give an example of this. So we had a, a milk producer in Australia doing very well. But China then restricted its, its exports to China, which is the major place for exporting. That then drove down the price of its shares. So it then became a very cheap company to buy. China has bought the company. Yeah. Yeah. It's shocking. It's a shocking. And our politicians are useless about this because one of the arguments is that our politicians are in the pay of the Chinese. It's horrendous to see the number of Australian politicians who retire and then go to work for Chinese companies. So there's a, you know, this is becoming a really big issue. That's why in my talk to Reinvent Australia, I was saying we've just got to have China on our radar screen. We've had Britain and America for too long on our radar screen. We've lived in that very small bubble of weird, Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. We've got to be getting our heads around the threat that's coming out of China. We, we don't have a war with China, but we nonetheless need to find ways of standing up to China and also at the same time develop links with India, which is also an emerging great power, and to realise there is more to our relationship with, it, with India than just cricket, curry and the Commonwealth. So we need to expand our links with India as well so that we ourselves can have alternative customers. Could be worth a whole episode in itself, one on India. Absolutely. Explaining that country because that is very fascinating as well. It is, absolutely. All right. As always, Dr Keith, very enlightening. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.